This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on SiriusXM. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Leadership in Action on Business Radio. Welcome to Leadership in Action, Sirius XM's business radio powered by the Wharton School of the University of Pennsylvania. I'm Mike Hussein, Faculty Director of the Center for Leadership and Change in the McNulty Program. And uh, we are here today with Anne Greenhall, my good friend, exec, uh, Deputy Executive Director of the McNulty Leadership Program. Before we begin, I want to remind you that new episodes of our show premiere every Friday at 9 a.m. Eastern here on Business Radio, Sirius XM Channel 132. And of course, don't forget to follow us on Twitter at SXM Business. So, and before we get uh, going and before I introduce our guest, um, I just want to welcome you to the show. And Ann, I'm going to hit you with a slightly oddball question, which will connect with where we're going in the show itself. Uh, no simple answer, but in thinking about your teaching, you've been online, and of course, you have a history of teaching in person. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which is better? Oh, Mike, great question. And I'm so glad to say that our dear colleague, Jeff Klein, has also just joined us, so he may want to weigh in on that as well. Oh. Well, Mike, I I am a strong believer in face-to-face and person-to-person, but I have to say that um, the ability to pivot and actually facilitate an experiential learning class entirely remotely last year was an incredible opportunity and learning experience for me. And this year, the challenge has been to have one foot on the platform and one on the train to have students right in front of me, nose to nose, eye to eye, And also on occasion, because we're being mindful of the pandemic, to have some students coming in remotely because they are either they've tested positive for COVID or they have symptoms and they're well enough to, quote, be in class, but not able to be in person. So I really have to say that the um, necessity has been the mother of invention, and I have really embraced the opportunity to learn how to facilitate a class in person, remotely, and simultaneously online and in person. And I love it. Ambidexterity is yes. the world going forward. <laughs> I want to quickly introduce uh, my good friend and colleague, Jeff Klein, who is the executive director here at uh, Wharton at Penn for the McNulty Leadership Program. And uh, Jeff, uh, welcome. And uh, same question for you. If you got a choice, would you rather teach online or in person? Thanks, Mike. Um, I, I can't match Anne's level of uh, enthusiasm and optimism. <laughs> yeah. So, so I'll just I'll just say I'll I'll take in person. My jokes don't translate as well online. <laughs> reason enough to keep it personal, if at all possible. Well, that's great. That's a, a great warm up and where we're going. And I want to introduce our guest, Alec Ross. Uh, one of the world's leading experts on innovation. We're going to talk about that. And Alec, uh, welcome to our program. Thank you for having me. Really great to have you here. Let me just mention to our listeners that you're a former senior advisor in the Obama administration. You have a new book, The Raging 2020s, Companies, Counties, Peoples, and the Fight for Our Future. So the, the, the bigger issues are contained therein. 
You're also uh, the author of an earlier book, best-selling book called The Industries of the Future. We're going to talk about both, but let's begin with The Raging 2020s. I'm curious just about the, the title, The Raging 2020s. Uh, we have a raging epidemic. I think that's uh, pretty clear, but how else are we raging in the 2020s? Well, you know, the word raging has a dual connotation. So, you know, for my generation, I'm generation X and older. I find that when you give the title, people immediately think of raging in terms of anger. Yeah. Uh, but what's funny is I have an 18-year-old son who's at college, and I bet with a bunch of your students, Mike, the connotation of raging is like a great party. <laughs> yes. A raging party. That's right. And so the, the word raging actually has an implicitly positive connotation. And so the idea with the, the raging 2020s is that, look, the, the, this decade has gotten off to, I think, a pretty lousy start, you know, with a pandemic, with, you know, a, a, an attempt to overthrow the American government on January 6th, 2020, uh, January 6th, 2021. Um, but how it finishes is entirely up to us. So at the core of the title of this, it sort of harkens back in part to the roaring 20s, to the 1920s, where we did have an economic boom. We had an artistic and cultural boom. But then the decade finished in a really difficult way. It finished with an economic collapse. And the response to that economic collapse varied wildly and widely in Germany, we saw the turn to Nazism. In Italy, we saw a turn to fascism. In the United States, it provided the basis for the New Deal. So I have a feeling the 2020s harkens back in many similar respects to the 1920s. We just don't know how it finishes yet. Yep. Alec, to connect that with the theme of this program, leadership in action, implicitly, I've heard you say, I'm just going to see if this is indeed confirmed at year end that the decade is in our hands. We just have to figure out how to get through it as well as possible and not blow it. No, that's right. You know, in a world of increasingly powerful artificial intelligence, machine learning, and robotics, I think that that which makes us most human grows more important. And in fact, leadership has actually, I would argue, never been more important than it is at this moment. And if we are going to finish this decade uh, raging like it's a really good party instead of raging like we're in a scene out of Mad Max, then at the core of this is going to be leadership. All right, that's terrific. A great platform for our discussion. And let me turn the baton over to Anne to keep the discussion going. Anne. Thank you, Mike and Alec. A pleasure and an honor to speak with you. Uh, so if, if the future is in our hands, uh, you make me think about how we might write the future in a positive way, both individually, interpersonally, and then organizationally. So I, I might start with organization. How can the organizations go forward and um, create a better future? Well, what defining organizations like let's think of these like our institutions our, our right. medium and big size companies our universities and what have you all of all of our organizations are signatories to the social contract um you know the social contract is not a piece of paper you will find but it's it's that which defines mm -hmm. the responsibilities and the limits of those responsibilities between government mm -hmm. citizens and Sure enough, our institutions. And 
you know, what I've come to believe is that our institutions are really indispensable. And first of all, being the places that demonstrate how um, the social contract can work better. I'll give one example. Um, with industrialization, how did we make industrialization work? You know, there was a period from 1800 to 1840 called the Engels Pause, where we saw rapid industrialization driven in part by technological change. But the well-being of workers didn't necessarily improve. This was the stuff of the Dickens novels, you know, 11-year-olds mm-hmm. losing arms in factories. What ultimately made industrialization work was rewriting the social contract. And the idea, for example, that, hey, if you work in my factory for 30 years, at the end of those 30 years, you're going to get this thing called a pension. It sort of harmonized the relationship between institutions, in this case, the employer, and the employee. The first pension in the United States was actually uh, not a government program. It was from American Express, back when American Express was actually a delivery company delivering goods into the frontier. And the innovation pioneered by American Express, a company, became indispensable to making sure that as, we, as our workers grow older and as they leave the work world, they don't grow poorer. So I think that our institutions, our organizations are really the places where we experiment and try out those things that then can then be scaled out across states and across societies. It's very rare for a government to sort of come up with an idea, impose it at the federal level, and then it works across the span of society. These innovations, these developments tend to come from within organizations, leaders saying, hey, you know what? What can we do to incent long-term engagement and employment of our employers? Let's say if they work here for 30 years, after those 30 years, we'll pay them X percent of their final salary for the rest of their lives. So that's the role that our organizations can play. Jeff, let's bring you in. Thanks, Mike. And Alec, great to have you here. I want to stay maybe right in this um, line of questioning because I think there's there's even... um, if we if we look back over time, there's even another role that government plays in that government was of, often making the investments and explorations in science, which then found application within you know business organizations that that started to reshape. So, are are you also seeing shifts in the role that government plays to support that kind of early R and D? So I think that the states and societies that do the most to invest in high-risk non-commercial research tend to be those that benefit a decade later. And, you know, let's give the Chinese credit for a moment. You know, the Chinese government decided about 15 years ago that having lost out on being the real driver of innovation in digitization, sure, it has a number of really big internet companies, but they didn't really, they didn't create the internet, they didn't create e-commerce, they didn't create search engines, they didn't create social media. They did determine that within a couple strategic fields, for example, genomics, for example, um, artificial intelligence, that they did want to be the home for the early commercialization and innovation there. So the Chinese government did aggressively invest um, in R&D. The United States, um, 
has also historically done this very well. The, the mm-hmm. Europeans on a per capita basis less so. But it's, this is, and this goes again to the theme of leadership. Leadership mm-hmm. at the government level is the willingness to make long-term, long-term high-risk bets that don't necessarily have a short-term payoff. And so I do believe that um, government plays a role to invest where the market won't and where, frankly, the market shouldn't. You know, IBM or Amazon shouldn't necessarily be investing in highly speculative R&D that is detethered from its core business. That's the role of government. Jeff, let me break in for just a second to remind listeners that this is Leadership in Action, Business Radio, Sirius XM Channel 132. I'm your host, Mike Hussein. I'm here with Jeff Klein and Ann Greenhall, and we are in active discussion with Alec Ross, a visiting professor at the University of Bologna and author of the new book, The Raging 2020s. Jeff, back to you. Alec, I, I'd love to just stay with this a little bit because when when we think about um, we, we think about the role of government and the willingness of government to make long term bets, um, what's implied about the payoff that government then receives 15, 20, 25 years later as some of these uh, innovations are commercialized? Is it indirect through? a more robust economy through higher taxes, or is, is there more direct, uh, a, a more direct benefit to them? And then, sorry for the two-part question, um, but I can't help, of, uh, help but think of our sort of fractured national debate right now. And what does such polarization do to any government's ability to sustain those long-term bets beyond an administration? So that's, those are great questions. And the answer to the first part of it is there are actually three different models. There's a Chinese model, there's a European model, and there's American an American model, and they're very different. So the Chinese model, when it makes investments in long-term R&D, what it does when it commercializes, it gets folded in to one of its government-supported enterprises, into one of its so-called GSEs. So it's commercialized through the private sector but a private sector entity where government has de facto or implicit control. So the the payoff is, in many respects, direct. The European model, which I would actually argue is the least efficient, um, it's one of those that looks great in theory but actually works less well in practice, they have fairly strict regulations around technology transfer and around commercialization of basic research. So, you know, Sergey Brin and Larry Page, uh, when they invented Google, um, as master's students at Stanford, they could not have commercialized that within most European contexts. Why? Because the ownership of that IP is institutionalized and then has to go through a fairly long and difficult process to bring it into public markets. Mm-hmm. And the problem with that is that in order to bring a, a product of research and development to the, to the public, What you tend to want after you see some really interesting research is not more research dollars. You want venture capital. So the actual process of bringing venture capital into university research is much more difficult in Europe, as opposed to the the well-known example of Google, where two smart kids um, 
come up with a great idea, get some angel investments, including, oh, by the way, from some of their professors, then raise $25 million from venture capital firms, and it commercializes. The United States uh, takes a much more libertarian approach to this, uh, where the ability to commercialize research is easier. Um, so it lends itself to faster commercialization. The downside of this, though, Jeff, goes exactly to your question, is the benefits of that commercialization are overwhelmingly privatized. Yeah. So we do a great job creating billionaires. We do, less, a, we do a substantially less good job making sure that there is direct public benefit of that wealth creation beyond things like increased taxes. But a, but a, a problem tied to this in which I write extensively about in the raging 2020s is we've done a very bad job of actually collecting taxes from this new, new super rich class. And so there are a lot of thinkers out there, including, for example, Mariana Mazzucato and others saying, you know what, we need to create new models that allow the public se sector to harvest some of the benefit of this investment. Great, thanks, Alec. And Mike, why don't I turn it back to you? Yeah, so Alec, let me just uh, stay on that for a few more minutes and ask you about your sense of optimism or maybe implicit pessimism. Uh, you do argue very effectively on the show and certainly in your book too, uh, the, the kind of points you just offered up. So as we fall short of what we probably should be doing, which is learning to commercialize technology, putting it in the market, making certain that there's public benefit along with private gain. Are you, in looking at the US in particular, are you optimistic or pessimistic that the agencies in Washington and also the White House have the capacity to move us in a, um, a modestly different direction to capture some of the benefit for the public good? What do you think? I am optimistic that those institutions can move us modestly in the direction of the, of the public good. <laughs> That's, I, I loved your framing of that question because it allowed me to be an optimist. And, and, you know, let me just say, Mike, I think only optimists change the world. You know, you can look mm -hmm. at the Mad Max-like state of inequality in the United States right now. You can look at the dysfunction within lots of our public sector institutions and want to curl into the fetal position, but that's not productive. Um, I do think that we have to look at the state of our economy. We have to look at the state of well-being and division in this country and say, all right, well, what can we affirmatively do to get us out of the ditch? Um, I do think that the public sector has underperformed in many respects over past decades and, and making sure that there, are broad, that there is broader well-being resulting from these gains. But I do think there's a wider recognition across the political spectrum. Um, the language might be different. The, the mechanics about how to get there might be different. But I do think we're finally at a point of recognition across the political spectrum uh, that we say, you know what, we need to figure out how we can innovate and create wealth in a way that is more inclusive. Um, you know, I see this even, mm -hmm. you know, I see this coming uh, in areas that are, I think, are actually a shared priority between Democrats and Republicans right now, for example, in the area of antitrust um, and recognizing the importance of competition in our economy. I see this increasingly with the scrutinization of tax policies uh, that have enabled 
a very small percentage of Americans to accumulate enormous wealth in a way that's really out of balance. Um, you know, I'm look, I'm in the one percent. Uh, I have be- I've benefited substantially uh, from the tax policies that we have that enable me to deploy capital and re- benefit from the deployment of that capital. But even I recognize that things are a little bit off. I mean, the fact that I wrote this book, The Raging 2020s, and I probably paid a lower percentage of my income in taxes than the 26-year-old research assistants who worked for me, that's off. That's off. And I say that from my position of of privilege. Alec, this is great. Let me remind listeners that this is Leadership in Action, Business Radio. I'm Mike Usame. I'm here with Ann Greenhall and Jeff Klein. And we're speaking with you, Alec Ross, about the raging 2020s. And thank you, Alec. I would love to have you talk briefly about taxes and the wormhole in the global economy. Yeah, so it's right now we have a tax system that is exceedingly complicated. Talking about it is really boring, and it's, <laughs> and it's very, very important. Right. Uh, you know, I, I do have a chapter in the Raging 2020s on tax, in part because it's so inaccessible. It's so opaque. And what I do, actually, is I do a case study on somebody buying a belt after clicking on a Google ad. And I get into the economics of, ta- of tax payment for what happens uh, when somebody buys that belt. And what ends up happening is the, the company that sells the belt pays north of 30% in taxes. The person who bought the bell pays right around 40% in taxes. Uh, And Google, in this case, because of how they've organized their tax scheme, they pay pay 0.07% in taxes Mm -hmm. because of things related to, you know, the their subsidiary in Netherlands renting the IP from their subsidiary in the Cayman Islands and doing base erosion and transfer pricing that wipes $30 $30 billion of profits and calls them and calls them um, costs. Right now we have a heads I win, tails you lose economy on the, on the subject of taxes, where the most egregious practices are actually legal. And while it would be easy for me to sort of finger wag <laughs> at you know, the pharmaceutical companies or the technology companies that engaging in these tax practices, so long as they as these practices are legal they are compelled to do them. Right. And so going back to some of our discussion previously about the role of state, it is the role of the state to take those things which are legal and ought not be and make mm-hmm. them illegal. And so going again to Mike's question about optimism, part of why I'm optimistic is that the OECD, the 36 largest economies in the world, have come around um, and coalesced around the view that we ought to have a global minimum tax of 15%. And this is a highly productive, highly positive step in the right direction. And when I've spoken, I've spoken with some of the CEOs of some of these very, very, very large companies um, that have engaged in tax practices that enable them to pay less than 15%. And they're largely accepting of this. They get it. They understand. It's already built into their long-term projections. There are some very obvious fixes we can make. You know, illegal tax activity is something else entirely. I think we can focus on that which is legal and fixable, um, but there's complexity within it that has kept us from making much in the way of progress to this point. Alec, thank you. Mike. Okay, Alec, uh, I'm going to 
basically head towards a break here. Just want to say to everybody listening in, don't leave us. We're, we're going to be back. <laughs> and I do want to make a note of the fact, Alec, that in addition to the book and your service on the faculty at Bologna in Italy, uh, you have worked in effect in the White House. So you were at the Department of State. You worked on uh, the, what's called the Technology and Media Policy Committee on Barack Obama's 2008 pre presidential campaign. And you also worked on the Obama-Biden uh, presidential transition team. So you've seen leadership up close. And so when we come back, I want everybody to hang in. We're going to um, talk with you, Alec, about uh, the difference that people at that level can make uh, for better or not so good. But just to give us a preview, uh, what, what is one thing that sticks with you just in about 60 seconds here, more than anything else, when you looked at leadership up close in the White House at the Department of State, what, what caught your attention like nothing else? One thing that caught my attention like nothing else was watching Barack Obama make a decision about something where the, what he was deciding was essentially going to determine a body count, how many people were going to die. The higher the stakes, the cooler he was. It was like he had ice water going through his veins. He was very coolly analytical at those moments where the decisions were most important. He ingested lots of data. He asked lots of questions. And he was as cool as the other side of the pillow. Yeah, I love it because, of course, <laughs> uh, for some of us, uh, we, we behave in the opposite way. When the pressure's on, we get tense, blood pressure goes up, uh, we heat up, we don't cool off. So, Alex, watching the president up close get cool, very cool, under fire. If you wouldn't mind, could you just take us almost visually or imaginatively visually here into the situation room? What's it like as you go in? And then what did you witness? Of course, some of this will have to remain confidential, but what did you witness as tough decisions are in the leader's hands for the United States of America? You know, when you're in positions of power, a lot of the reality is less glamorous than what you see on TV. This <laughs> is not one of those cases. Actually, when you go to the White House Situation Room, it is in the basement of the West Wing of the White House. You go in and it is spectacular. It is like something out of Star Trek, you know, from a technological <laughs> perspective. The Situation Room is, as, as it is often uh, portrayed on TV, it is windowless. There are video screens all over the place. And it's where you go when it's game time. You, it's where you go when there, is a very, when there are very serious things to be discussed in private or when you're monitoring something that is unfolding in real time. And you know, coming to the topic of leadership, one thing that struck me was watching Barack Obama in the Situation Room, where the decisions that he would make would determine life or death. And as that screen, as those screens are showing actions taking place halfway around the world, his eyes would almost go down to half half lit. His voice would get you know deeper and slower, mm. and he would ask more and more questions. As some people might have gotten jumpy around the table. Some people were getting scared. Some people were saying, we got to move fast. He was very, you know, he was very analytical. Um, you know, Obama would actually, the things that he got upset about uh, were the things of least importance. You know, if he, you know, wanted to sign books and didn't have a Sharpie, he'd get snippy about that. Or, you know, if, 
you know, he wanted some tea and, you know, his, his personal assistant was there. And he'd be like, where is he? But you would never hear anything like that in moments of actual mm. importance with generals, with stars and bars on their shoulder, the secretary of defense, the secretary of state, the director of the CIA around the table and people like me sitting at the edges as staff. That's when he would get very cool. Mm. It's ready, aim, fire. It's mm. not ready, fire, aim. Great. Very helpful. Jeff, over to you. Yeah. Thanks, Mike. Um, I've been, you know, as we've been in this conversation um, and thinking about leadership and thinking about the impacts of leadership, um, it, it brings me to, to kind of to want to ask about what this means for um, the American worker, what this means for the the global worker. I mean, here in the country right now, we're we're clearly seeing a mismatch between, you know, wages and employee expectations. But what does what does this realignment of the roles of business and government? Um, what does it mean for today's worker? So I think we're in a sort of new angles pause. You know, defining the angles pause is those 40 years at the beginning of the 19th century where we saw industrialization, but we also had the industrialization of Charles Dickens novels. Uh, what followed? What followed that was, first of all, the largest wave of revolutions in Europe's history in the 1840s. What followed were ideological movements like communism. The Communist Manifesto was written in 1848. I feel like we're in one of those moments getting into the 1840s where there is this rage and where we do see the post-World War II ideological consensus fracturing. And we see uh, you know, the development of what we, I guess we would call the far right and the far left that used to be in our peripheral vision growing ever more mainstream. But what happened? You know, what ended the revolutions? What actually made industrialization work? What made industrialization work was leadership. It was the likes of Bismarck in Germany, Lord Asquith uh, in the United Kingdom, seeing things that could make industrialization work, like a 40-hour work week, like a minimum wage, like pensions, which we discussed earlier, free public education up until you're about 18 years old. These were all things that created equilibrium between government power, business power, and the health and well-being of citizens. It's like, yeah, you can go work in a factory and your employer must pay you this minimum wage. Uh, you know what? You don't get to work in the factory until you're 15 or 16 years old. Guess what? You are now, and this was through the work of unions, instead of the six-day work week, which characterized the work week uh, of the agricultural age, the only day being off Sunday, the, the, the day of our Lord, it's like, you know what? We're actually going to create this thing called a weekend. The concept of the weekend was born out of the labor movement. I think we are at a point now where, you know, my, my kids who are all teenagers are unlikely to have a single employer for 30 years and get a pension at the end of it. I mean, how many students at Wharton uh, are going to have a single employer for 30 years in anticipation of a pension? Very, 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 very few. So what is a pension? in a world where we don't have a single employer for 30 years. Uh, the, very, the architecture of our education system was rooted in part in the harvest. You know, hey, we need people to be able to, you know, work, in the, work on the farm during the summer. Uh, and by age 18, 
we were elites could go to college and university and non-elites could go work in the in the port factory minor mill now we're in a world where as you all know very well we have to be lifelong learners what are those things that we can do to help ensure lifelong learning and so in the same way in which we rewrote our social contract in the middle of the 19th century to make industrialization work so too do i think we need to examine examine our social contract today in an increasingly technology rich and knowledge based economy yeah. Alec, thank, thanks so much for that. And um, if I can, I want to just slide one more question in here before uh, I hand this back to Mike. Um, and, and I want to ask it on behalf of my teenage son. Um, we will often, uh, as the evening's winding down, go for a walk, take our chocolate lab with us. And uh, a week or two ago, he was, so he experiences Bill Gates not as the founder of Microsoft but as a global philanthropist who's trying to solve the world's problems. And, and the conversation that we got into is, is very apropos of the book, The Raging Twenties, where I was asking him whether Bill Gates should have the right to direct the kind of philanthropy he directs um, from you know, his own worldview, basically, or whether that kind of investment in responding to pandemics, trying to eradicate illness would be better served by, uh, you know, by local and national governments. Uh, and I wonder, because I was losing the argument, if you could help me out here. <laughs> Very good. Well, well look, um, in a perfect world, our national and local governments would make some of the interventions of a Bill Gates uh, completely unnecessary. Unfortunately, and there's, a, there's a, a case study I do in my book about the response to uh, the hurricane in, in, um, in, actually in Puerto Rico. And the example I give is it shows the work of FEMA, which is a DECA billion dollar institution with over 10,000 employees, juxtaposed with an NGO run by a chef, Jose Andres, and, and World Central Kitchen. And I, sh and I showed, you know, the degree to which this NGO spectacularly outperformed FEMA. Um, now, should private philanthropists be able to support NGOs to do this kind of work? I would argue yes. But that does not absolve government of the mission and the responsibility for making that, un for making that unnecessary. And I do go into a little bit, why is government not working? And I focus in on three things, vitocracy, kludgeocracy, and brain drain, which brief, briefly, vitocracy is, you know, it's the idea that we are so polarized politically right now that it makes it impossible to create any sort of consensus. Kludgeocracy is what we're really talking about here, Jeff, which is the, the operations of government have grown so complex that it's almost impossible for it to do anything. Kludge, the idea of a kludge is it's a software patch, something that fixes a big messy patch of software. But if you think about it, 100 years ago, we were really good at building bridges. We dug subways. We, 70 years ago, we built a national highway system. It seems like something of that ambition would be almost impossible right now because of the cost and complexity. Ha you know, have we grown dumber? Have we grown less capable? No. What we have is this huge stack 
of kludge, of regulations and of division that makes things difficult. And then the third thing is brain drain. And I hate to say this, but you know, there was a period from the end of, through World War II, through the Cold War, where the best and brightest of a lot of our colleges and universities would love, would love to go into government. Graduates of the Wharton School would go to the Treasury Department. Uh, graduates of um, you know, our best institutions <laughs> considered it prestigious to go into the Foreign Service, to work at the CIA, even to work in state government. Now that's almost not the case. And while there are many uh, outstanding public servants working in career civil servants, its esteem is substantially less than it once was. And oftentimes, if you do go into government, you put in five, six, seven years of service, and you then double your salary by going into the private sector. So unfortunately, ideologically, ideologically, I want governments to do, I want us to be more governed by countries than by companies. I want democratic consent as opposed to the investments in the will of billionaires. But what we do have to do is reform our public sector so that it doesn't take a Bill Gates or an NGO run by a chef uh, to address some of these problems. Alec, that's terrific. Let me break in again and just remind listeners, this is Leadership in Action, Business Radio, Sirius XM, Channel 132. I'm your host, Mike Hussein. I'm here with uh, Anne and Jeff, uh, my good friends and colleagues. And we're talking to Alec Ross, author of The Raging 2020s, Companies, Countries, People, and the Fight for Our Future. So, Anne, over to you. And then we're not too far off from an after-action review. I'd like listeners to begin, in, begin to think about the, the point you'd like to hang on to, or even a couple of points. In the meantime, Anne. Uh, thank you, Mike. Alec, I'm right with you. Countries over companies. But now my question, and this is a U.S.-centric question, uh, what changes do we need to set, make in our democratic system in order to ensure that our country is <laughs> making the decision more than wealthy wealthy billionaires? Well, I'll point to three things. First of all, we do need campaign finance reform. The idea, Thank you. <laughs> the, yeah, the idea that money equals speech is intellectually oh. incoherent. Um, and the fact that we now can, we can essentially buy the public officials that we want, and this is reflected in the data, is malignant. That's the exactly. Number two is gerrymandering. So what mm -hmm. we have right now are hyper-partisan districts uh, where all of the incentives, you know, we live in a world of incentives. You know, you at Wharton understand incentives. Right now we have districts, uh, congressional districts, where you where they are either super democratic and to the left or super republican and to the right. Pennsylvania is actually somewhat an exception to this, but for most of America what we've done is we've created incentives for polarization within gerrymandering. Uh, and then the last thing that I would say which I think is is gives me some hope is this thing called rank choice voting. Yeah. Yeah. Um which allows voters to not just vote for one person, but to put who they want to support in order, first place, second place, third place, mm -hmm. so that what we don't end up with are always the two most extreme candidates. And that isn't always the case, but the data suggests that in other states and societies that have introduced ranked choice voting, we tend to get a better product out of that. 
Yeah. Alec, thank you. If I could just follow up a little bit. Absolute power corrupts absolutely. So how do we move those in power to actually make these changes, which would be in the general and to the benefit to the general good? So I do think that we have to recognize that most of this kind of change comes from the bottom up, as well as from leadership that has seen the very virtue and value of these things. So let's talk, let's go back to the example of, of Bismarck and Lord A. Squip, uh, creating laws uh, that essentially created the regulatory and statutory framework for industrialization in Europe. They saw the benefits of what was happening locally and within organizations uh, before they made the decision to scale things across societies. So I think what's very necessary is for us to show the leadership that's taking place within our organizations and at the state and local level, and, and then push you know, our absolute power, our, our, our absolute powers uh, <laughs> like Bismarck to make choices in the public good. Uh, I also think that there's, that there is an aspect of this related to the long-term versus the short-term. Mm -hmm. It's very rarely in the interest of people in power to make these kinds of changes over the short-term. It's not mm -hmm. in their short-term interest. But to the extent that we can push our leaders to think increasingly long-term, then what we do see is it realigns the incentives in a way that makes doing the difficult things over the short-term easier. So we really, we are, the United States is really crippled right now by chronic short-term thinking, in my opinion. Great. Thank you, Alec. Alec, I've got a final question for you, and then we're going to shift gears and, and look back on what you've said and pick out the points from it. In a recent issue of The Atlantic, you have an article from the book, The Pentagon's Army of Nerds, subtitle is Why the Military Needs Silicon Valley, now more than ever. I'm going to turn that into a, a slightly different uh, focal point here. You have said that artificial intelligence, AI, is enormously important now and certainly even more so in the future. Uh, in your view, is, is AI on balance? Uh, is, is, that, uh, is that a force for the good? Is it a force for the bad? Or does it really depend on people in the Pentagon and in Silicon Valley making the right choices ahead. What do you think? This is going to be one of the, this is one of those open questions. Coming back to the title of the book, The Raging 2020s, uh, do we end, does artificial intelligence help bring us to a better place or a worse place is rooted entirely in the choices that we make. Now, at a very banal level, I'll give a banal example of, of AI that's made my life better. Uh, the recommendations algorithm on Spotify. I've discovered music on Spotify that I would never have otherwise discovered. You know, small artists from all over the world. It's made my life better. Music plays a bigger role in my life today than it has any time since I've been a teenager because of AI. Uh, I would also argue that AI does it, it plays an important role in keeping us safe with, you know, something that, you know, has a dark shroud over it, like fa some facial recognition technologies that enable us to find uh, terrorists and terrorist threats the use of that technology can be used to surveil uh, behavior that, ought, that, that is um, benign, um, but it also can be used to positive effect. But the thing about these technologies is they can be used for good or for ill. I think they are largely value neutral. And the question then is how do mm -hmm. we govern them? How do we regulate them? Um, 
how do we make sure that we maximize the promise and minimize the minimize the peril of these very powerful technologies. And that comes down to something we can't outsource to our algorithms, our human judgment. Alec, a final question for me, then we're gonna do our AAR and Jeff, just to give you the heads up, I'm gonna get you uh, onto that as our, our opener. Alec, as you think about Washington, uh, the US Capitol, but similar debates range, uh, range of course in other capitals as well, is is your optimism about putting AI to good use and avoiding the, the the downside, the evil side? Does it depend more on the legislative functions, the agencies that regulate, the White House? So where's where, where should we look for um, guidance of an affirmative kind on artificial intelligence and its applications? Uh, within government, but among the several branches of government. What do you well, think? I would, I would say that there are a lot of smart people in government who understand artificial intelligence. We need many more. Uh, but what I would say is that it doesn't absolve the private sector of, of responsibility here. Um, and there have been some movements, you know, among some of the tech plutocrats, you know, um, the Elon Musk's, Sam Altman's and Reid Hoffman's and others who have tried to say, well, in the absence of government regulation, are there frameworks that we can get around, around what is the reasonable use of artificial intelligence? I think AI is so big that we can't rely on any one sector, any one line of authority within this. Great. Terrific. Good. So as I turn to Jeff, let me just remind listeners that this is Leadership in Action, Business Radio, Sirius XM 132. I'm Mike Yuseem. I'm here with Ann Greenhall and Jeff Klein. Uh, we're talking with, um, well, with the author of, of The Raging 2020s, Alec Ross. And Jeff, why don't you get us going? We may do two rounds today, time permitting, of our after action review here. What, what one point would you have listeners hang on to above all else that we've had in a very interesting discussion with Alec to this point? Before I give you my, uh, uh, my point, I, I have to say when, when you change the rules like this and introduce the possibility of two rounds, now I'm wondering, like, do, do I save the extra nugget for round two or do I preempt you from stealing it? Because... So often you take the points that I'd like to make. So I, I just wanted to note some of my own All right. comfort uh, as we, we try to participate on shifting sands here. Um, I'm going to go high level then for, uh, for the first part of this after action review and say, you know, Alec talked uh, in, in a couple different ways about leadership. And I want to highlight you know, first leadership being about a willingness to make long-term bets, which shape the future, and also leadership being about creating equilibrium among different institutions um, and the workforce. So businesses, government, um, and the workforce. Great. Anne, how about you? Oh, that's great. I'm enjoying what Jeff has said, because yes, uh, leadership has come up a lot in our conversation here. And uh, Mike, I'm going to tip my hat to you. So has decision making and this notion of choice and our opportunity yeah. to write the future. And that that is a responsibility that I 
that we began uh, initially by talking about organizations and companies in particular, but a governmental responsibility. And uh, we haven't talked so much about the individual responsibility, but I would add that as well. So choice and decision-making. Great, excellent. Alec. You know, if I were to, if I were to pull one thing out of all of this that I would urge people to, to take away, it's the focus on uh, the social contract. You know, that which defines and limits the responsibilities between organizations, individuals, and government. The social contract is a living document. Um, but it's something that I think we all need to Im- investigate and engage on. And I do feel like coming out of COVID, uh, we have an opportunity. You know, the artist, it's, the artist Picasso said something very Schumpterian where he said, uh, uh, every act of creation begins with an act of destruction. And so I hope coming out of the destruction of COVID, we will once again become creative in thinking about our social contract. Alec, that's great. I'm going to be very brief so we can do one more very quick round. And Jeff, I promise not to have anticipated any (laughs) of your thunder. On the micro side, coolness under fire. We've had a great description of what it means to be in the situation room when decisions are big, stakes are very high, and for the person in charge to indeed remain cool under fire, a lesson for us all. And then secondly, back to the social contract, Alec has really said that when we think about Re, reinforcing the social contract, we mean among all parties. So business, the private sector, Silicon Valley, the Pentagon, uh, Capitol Hill, uh, political leaders, and well beyond. So with that said, Jeff, in 15 seconds, a final point from you. All right. Uh, this one's a little self-serving, but uh... I will say I, I loved Alex's comments that only optimists can change the world. Yep, here, here. And mine too. I like that. And mine is also self-serving. Uh, Jeff, you'll appreciate this. I love the literary thread that's run through our conversation. The conversations about the importance of cases <laughs> and narratives. And the social contract is a living document. Facts don't speak for themselves, we speak for them and stepping up and taking responsibility um, for articulating our future, I think is really, is a thread that comes out for me. All right, Alec, 10 seconds of final thought. I'll make a point about agency. How the 2020s ends, we have an internal locus of control, not an external locus of control. We get to decide how this decade goes. Great. Alec, thank you for joining the show. Uh, people can find you on the web. Uh, this is Mike Hussein. If you've got a question for us, let us know over the usual channels that we've referenced. Special thanks again to Alec Ross, our guest of, of the day. want to thank our special producer, Patty Hall, our sound engineer, Chris Took. I'm Mike Hussein, and you've been listening to Leadership in Action on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, University of Pennsylvania. Sirius XM channel 132. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play.